Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, your guide through Swedish history. I'm Chris, sitting opposite my co-host Orsa. Hello! This is episode two of our new format, Tangent Time, where we do a deep dive into some of the stories we come across in our journey through Swedish history, but that don't entirely fit in with our main narrative, but are also just too good to resist. This time, we are going to be talking about an unbelievable journey by an Italian merchant in the 1430s. But before we get on to that, we need to do our Swedish phrase of the week. We do indeed, and this time the phrase quite perfectly is Sitter still i botten, which uh, is a particularly suitable phrase for this week since we'll be talking about a very arduous voyage at sea, because Sitter still i botten literally translates to sit still in the boat. And it means to be calm and collected, to not panic. So you could say, for example, Oh, it's total chaos here at work with people running around getting ready for the big presentation. But I will just sitta still i båten, sit still in the boat and wait for everyone to calm down. I guess maybe it comes from the fact that if you're in a small boat, then you shouldn't get up and run around and panic because it will then start to wobble and maybe uh, capsize or something like that. So maybe everybody should just sit still for a bit. Yeah, that's true. It could be a very literal origin like that. Uh, I've not found any other explanation as to why we say it. So yeah, it might very well be that. And this was once again a phrase that our listener Magnus suggested we should cover, so thank you, Magnus. Yep, thank you for your excellent suggestions, as always. But now let's head to Crete in 1433. That's because our main character for today's story is getting ready to set sail there. So if you picture Crete on the map of Europe, or have a look at the map of Europe if you're not quite sure where it is, and for those of you driving or unable to have a look, Crete is pretty much smack bang in the middle of the eastern half of the Mediterranean Sea, just to the southeast of the very bottom of the Greek mainland, the Peloponnese Peninsula. Now, on that map of Crete, it looks a bit like a squished lizard or something like that, zoom in on Heraklion, which is the largest city of the island that's actually the fourth largest city in Greece today. And Heraklion hugs the north coast of the island in the middle of its long winding coastline. Keep zooming in onto Heraklion's port, and that's where we can see Venetian nobleman and merchant Pietro Quirini standing there watching his crew set about loading up his ship for a long and hopefully profitable voyage. He's got around 50 or so men helping out and getting the ship ready to set sail. You can imagine the sight. It's late April and if Corini is lucky, there's a nice breeze coming in off the sea. It's warm but not too warm in April in Crete, but his crew busy lifting and shifting their cargo is undoubtedly feeling the heat. It's heavy work because they were busy loading, among other things, 800 barrels of Malavasia wine, which Quirini was particularly famous for producing, but they also loaded spices, cotton and wax, all to a total weight of about 500 tons. 
So it goes without saying that Quirini is a wealthy trader, used to voyages around medieval Europe, living a life not unlike the many handsome merchants we've met in the main narrative of our story. We actually know all about the upcoming story because Quirini and two of his companions wrote about it, and that's how the records were preserved. Now, both Crete and Heraklion at this time are actually called Candia by the Venetians, and the island has been a colony of Venice since its conquest from the Eastern Roman Empire at the start of the 1200s or so. And by 1431, it really was a true prized Venetian possession. Crete had always been of particular importance among the Venetian colonies, but after a number of large-scale uprisings in the middle of the 1300s, a period of considerable prosperity for the island began, particularly during what the historian Freddy Thierry labelled the half-century of prosperity, or from 1400 to 1450. So we are right in the middle of this age of prosperity for Crete as we take our story forward today. And Quirini certainly feels right at home there. He has a home there, and he has the title of Signor, which is linked to the Monday Italian Signore. He's essentially a feudal lord and comes from a patrician Venetian family that claimed heritage all the way back to the Roman Empire. So Pietro Quirini is an important chap, and by the time the calendar flicks over to the 25th of April, his trading vessel, a carrack named the Quirina, uh, imaginatively named there, is ready to set sail. The crew cast off and steer westwards towards the Strait of Gibraltar. Their final destination is all the way up in Flanders, so this is going to be a pretty long journey. The winds, though, weren't helping the crew on this trip, and so it took them until the 2nd of June to reach Gibraltar. On the 2nd of June, they passed the straits there, and this was when the first of a litany of mistakes and bad fortune hits the crew. Because of what is called ignorance of the pilot, the ship got stuck upon the shoals there. Shoals are shallow ridges or banks that just peak out above the water. Getting stuck on these obstacles is anything but ideal, so much so that the ship's rudder was thrown off the hinges and water started pouring into the vessel in three different places. Now, we've all seen Titanic, so this isn't a good thing to happen. Quirini and his crew do everything they can, and luckily, after some great difficulty, their vessel limps into nearby Cadiz. The Quirina is unloaded and lengthy time-consuming repairs are completed, which take 25 days. The cargo is then reloaded and Quirini and his crew are ready to set off once more. But not before some new additions to the crew are introduced. Having learned in the meantime that Venice was now at war again with their perpetual rivals Genoa, Quirini brought in some extra men just in case. That meant that when they left Cadiz in the middle of July, the vessel was now home to 68 men. Luck really doesn't seem to be on their side, though, as bad winds send the men into dangerous seas near the Canary Islands. If you look at your map again, this is the wrong way if you're trying to get to Flanders. In fact, it's the exact opposite way. 
These winds were so bad and consistent that they were stuck for weeks and it was only when their supplies were about to run out that the wind turned in their favour and they could head back north. At the same time, their new rudder nearly gave away again and the Quirina once again limped to Lisbon on the 25th of August. So it's only about 270 miles or 440-ish kilometers from Cadiz to Lisbon, but that journey took them six weeks, so it's a really long detour. Once again, they need to get in some more repairs, so they fix the rudder once more and take on more supplies. They set off again in September, but the winds are still conspiring against them. This time they had to abandon the journey and put in at the port of Murez in Spain. And what are you to do when the winds are against you? Well, go to a nearby famous shrine while you wait it out, I guess? And that's what Quirini did with 13 of his crew as they prayed at the shrine of St. Jago de Compostela. They are probably praying for some good fortune and favourable winds on the next leg of the journey. But for the fourth time, they leave port hoping to actually get on with their journey. This time, they had a fair wind from the southwest and actually began heading north. This was perhaps when Corini breathed a sigh of relief and was ready to think that the worst was behind him. But he could not have been more wrong. Yeah, big mistake indeed, thinking that. Because on the 5th of November, the wind shifted and prevented them from entering the English Channel. And instead, they were forced west and north. The wind just got worse and worse. And on the 10th of November, the rudder once again came crashing off its hinges. I, I want to know who, who designed this vessel, because it's terrible. It's falling apart all the time. The crew were quite resourceful, though. They tried to fix the rudder back with some rope, but it soon broke loose again and was dragged after the ship for three days until the crew managed to drag it back to its proper position. But not all was well then, because the ship had been constantly sailing away from land. It now drove continually further away. Realising they could be at sea for quite a while, men were placed on guard by the food and water supplies and rationing was brought in. Not even Quirini himself had free access to the supplies. This sounds like the worst shopping trip ever, I think, at this point. Everything is going wrong. Now, the ship's carpenter, because uh, they took one with them at the time, put on his thinking cap and soon came up with a rough make-do solution. He told the crew to construct not one but two replacement rudders. These were made out of spare bits of mast and other random bits of wood on board, and eventually they made two triangular ends in order to steady the course of the vessel. Once they were properly fastened to the ship, hopes began to rise. Not only were these make-do rudders working, but they were actually working really well. And so they just turned around and went to Flanders and everything was great. Or? Uh, yeah, unfortunately not. Then more extreme winds and waves came, and soon these new makeshift rudders were ripped away too. Oh, 
On the 26th of November, the storm increased to such extreme violence that supposedly the crew thought the ship was going to sink at any moment. And just at the worst of it, though, the storm abated slightly, but by now every sail they had on board had been either ripped apart or torn to shreds. The ship now drove on without either sails or rudder, at the mercy of the winds and the waves just being thrown around all over the place. Quirini and his companions wrote that the waves kept crashing over the ship and the crew were so worn out because they had to constantly bail out the water to keep the ship afloat. This is just an absolute nightmare, isn't it? On the 4th of December, four large waves crashed over the ill-fated vessel in a row and filled it full of water. The crew thought that this must surely be it, what little luck they had they'd run out of. But they kept working on bailing the water out, even though at one point the water reached up to their waists. In fact, they worked so hard that they managed to get all the water out before there were any more damage. However, they soon came to the conclusion that they needed to get rid of the mast, as it was making the ship too heavy, according to the accounts. A large wave carried the mast away, but soon after, the wind and the waves were also becoming less violent. However, now the mast was gone, apparently that meant that the ship would no longer keep upright and began to list dangerously to one side. Uh, I'm not a ship architect, so I'm not entirely sure how that works, but yeah, apparently this was happening. And Quirini said that the water started to run into her in torrents, and the crew, not having had decent food or water for a long time by now, were now starting to tire and didn't have the strength to clear out the large vessel. And, and so at this most desperate point, Quirini gave the order to abandon ship. The vessel had two smaller boats on board, one which held 47 of the men and the smaller one 21. Quirini chose the larger boat with the rest of his officers and uh, some of the regular men piled into the smaller one. Both boats took with them what they could, um, supplies and some smaller trinkets, and on 17th of December they abandoned the Quirina. They had to leave behind their cargo, especially the valuable wine and pepper and ginger and all sorts of valuable things. They did manage to salvage some small pieces of silver that were easier to carry, but most of the cargo was now gone. If this wasn't bad enough, Quirini had to say goodbye to the Quirina, the ship named after his family, which had served them well, at least up until this journey. It must have been a really sad sight uh, for Quirini when he had to say goodbye to his ship and see it drift away. The next night, though, the storm returned with full force and the smaller of the two boats was separated from Quirini's lifeboat and was never seen again. Yeah, so basically 21 of them are now dead. They're, they're never seen of again and uh, that smaller lifeboat is just gone. Worried that even their bigger lifeboat was now vulnerable to sinking, the survivors threw overboard most of their stock of wine and provisions and all their clothes except what they had on them in order to lighten the load as much as possible. 
yeah, it's not going well at all. And it's at this point where they decide to try to steer towards where they thought Iceland would be. But the sea was so wild, they didn't really have much of an indication of where that might be. The gravity of the situation started to take its toll. Everyone was utterly exhausted, having to bail out water or keep long watches, and a great number of them started dying at this point. The main problem was the lack of water, so by then it was rationed to just one quarter of a cup for every 24 hours, and that's not a lot when you have to stay awake and keep bailing out water. And another problem was, you know, they didn't have much food, but what they did have was incredibly salty. They had salted meats, cheese and biscuits, so just eating those made them more thirsty. Those who looked healthy would sometimes die quite suddenly, and by the time they reached the middle of December, two or three were dying a day. This level of disaster prevailed for 10 days, from the 19th to the 29th of December. On the 29th, the last remainder of the wine was served out, and everyone left alive had to accept that death seemed close at hand. By this point, they had been at sea for about two months since they last saw land, with almost the entire journey being a disaster. Some of the people, as tend to happen in these situations, decided to drink seawater, which only sped up their demise. Yeah, it's never a good idea to try and drink seawater. No. Others, though, chose to drink their own urine, and that's what Quirini called a nauseous beverage, which uh, actually helped to keep some of them alive, though. For the space of about five days, they continued in this dreadful situation with people dying all the time, sailing at least vaguely northeastwards. And that was until finally, after months of terror and disaster, a cry rang out on the 4th of January. One of the men was pointing at something in the distance, and soon everyone was cheering and shouting, Land! Land ho! The men sprang to their oars and began rowing in the direction of the landmass on the horizon. However, it was a long way away, and because of how far north they were, daylight was very short at this time of year, making it hard to see where they were heading. In fact, there were only a few hours of daylight. Besides, the survivors were now so weak that they couldn't row for very long. Some started to think that rescue might just be as far off as before, despite this new hope of having seen land. When day came back round, they couldn't spot the landmass from before, but they could spot a different bit of coastline, this time quite mountainous. They learned their mistake from the previous sighting, and this time they used their compasses to fix their bearings and managed to rig a sail somehow to take them there, and it wasn't actually long before they reached the land. After a bit of manoeuvring around rocky shores, the boat finally crashed aground onto land. They'd actually somehow managed to make it. They still didn't have any idea where they actually were. Was this Iceland, or where were they? For people coming from Crete and the Mediterranean, there was another big thing, because the rocky land was totally covered in snow. Having had no proper food or drink for weeks, the men dived into the snow and started eating and swallowing as much of it as they could, as well as taking some back to those who were too exhausted to leave the boat. 
Quirini himself says that he swallowed so much snow that he would have found it difficult to carry the same amount on his back, as if all his happiness and welfare depended on how much snow he could eat. Uh, whilst it might have been a nice relief, it seems that some of the men ate so much snow that they died. Five men died at this point, but it does seem a bit suspicious because Quirini and the rest of his team put this down to the fact that these five were men who'd actually drunk a lot of seawater over the last couple of days, so maybe they just reached land too late. Fair enough. It's something you always have to tell kids in Sweden, like, to not eat snow. Will it kill you then? No, it's just nowadays with all the pollution in the air and uh, exhausts from cars and stuff, you shouldn't really ah, okay. eat snow because it's unfortunately quite polluted. I'm sure that the snow that Quirini was eating was just crisp, clear water, essentially. You can, if you're in remoter parts of Sweden, still quite safely eat the snow. But don't eat the snow in city centre Stockholm. That's a bad idea. Okay, sounds like a plan. And don't eat yellow snow either. No, no, that's that's a life lesson we all know. But either way, their terrible ordeal, or at least the seaborne part of it, was finally over after months of disaster and accidents, more terrible rudders than you can count, and all sorts of bad developments. Because they were now on land, so this meant they were safe, right? <laughs> But were they really safe? I mean, where even were they? As the men looked around, all they could see was snow, rock, sea and mountains. Was this any better, really, than bobbing around on the sea? What should they do? Well, they didn't have any rope to secure the boat to land with, and they didn't have the numbers or the strength to push or carry it ashore, so they decided to stay on board the lifeboat for the night. They waited until the next day, when 16 weak and despondent men trudged ashore and started to take stock of the situation. Less than a third of those on the larger lifeboat survived, and only 16, like we said, of the entire crew. But what else had survived the crazy journey so far? Well, they did have a little bit of cheese and leftover ham uh, with them on the boat at this point. So they ate all this food by a fire they'd built by using the seats from the boat and started to have a bit of a think. As far as they could see, there was no habitation nearby. The only option they had was to get back on the boat, minus the seats, and take some snowy water with them and move on elsewhere. And they were pretty sure now, though, that they were somewhere in Norway, but whereabouts exactly, they couldn't really guess. So back onto the boat they went, minus the seats they just burnt for the fire. But the vessel only managed to get a few metres away from the shore before water started pouring in from so many cracks and holes in the hull that they had to wade back to sea as it sank almost immediately. Clearly coming and crashing ashore the previous day had damaged the boat more than they'd thought. Now they had no food, no boat, and were all soaking wet and freezing after being forced into the water. This really isn't going well. The remains of the boat was smashed to pieces on the shore and on the rocks, and the survivors gathered some of it, including the oars and remains of the sail, to make two tents. One small, one larger for them to shelter in. 13 men fit in the larger one, with three in the smaller one. 
The only food they could find nearby were some mussels and other assorted shellfish, uh, not really enough to sustain them. What they did have a lot of, though, were maggots and lice. Yay, maggots and lice. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like maggots and rice, which still wouldn't be that great. And Quirini says there was so much of this that they could throw handfuls of them at a time into the fire. You can just imagine the crackling sound as all these maggots are being burnt alive. And unfortunately, there were too many of these vermin, so much so that they ate through the flesh of the neck of Quirini's secretary, apparently. And he, along with three men from Spain, died at this point, and uh, apparently the, the Spaniards had been drinking too much of the seawater. And the rest were so weak, they didn't even have the strength to drag the four bodies away from the campfire. It's hard to imagine the levels of despair and desperation at this point. It is quite literally the plot of a disaster film. Their only hope was to keep looking for a way off the island or for some sort of shelter. Hope came when 11 days after landing on the island, Quirinus' servant found a small wooden house at the furthest end of the rocky island. He returned excited as he also found some cow dung, so this must mean that there were both people and cattle relatively close by. The hut was large enough to house them all, so those who could, which were all but three or four men, started crawling or wading through the deep snow about a mile and a half to this little house. With them, they took the last of the ruins of the boat to use as firewood. Two days later, one of the crew was out on a regular search for shellfish when he found a giant fish lying on the shore. Quirini said it was as if God had provided the fish himself as it was fresh and weighed about 200 pounds, which is about 90 kilograms. So that's a huge fish. They cut this fish into thin slices and carried it back to the hut where they started to cook it. Apparently the smell of the fish was so nice that some started to eat it before it was properly cooked. But it didn't seem like this caused them any problems though. For four days they ate a lot of the fish trying to build up their strength. One of the men who stayed behind in the tents came to investigate what had happened up at the hut because he hadn't heard from them and then returned back to the tent taking some of this fish with him. Now they were feeling stronger, they could start rationing the fish, and the remnants of the bountiful price lasted them another ten days. So this just one fish kept them alive for two whole weeks, so you can tell how big it was. And it was at this point when proper help finally arrived. A fisherman and his two sons from the nearby island of Rust were out looking for some escaped cattle. They soon spotted the smoke coming from Quirini's hut and went to investigate. The two sons were apparently quite scared at the sight of the dishevelled shipwreck survivors, but soon they managed to at least vaguely understand each other. The fisher boat that they came with had space for two passengers back to where they lived, so Quirini sent with them two of the survivors, one who could speak a bit of French and one a bit of German, to the settlement to try and get help and see if anyone there could understand them. In the end, it would be this little bit of German that would be their salvation. The two men travelled with the Fischer family back to their island, Rust. As you can imagine, the locals were quite shocked to meet these men, the way they looked and the strange language they spoke. At first, nobody could understand them, until a German priest living in the area came and understood the pleas of the embattled sailors. 
A few days later, there was a religious festival on the 2nd of February, and the priest urged all the locals to help the crew to the best of their abilities. Apparently, some of the locals were moved to tears as the priest explained the plight of the crew, and so the very next day, the local people set out to rescue Corinne and his crew. Six boats were sent out to bring the men back to Rust, and when they were brought back, the Dominican priest gave Quirini, as the captain, some rye bread and some beer, which, quote, he looked upon as manna sent from heaven. And that's kind of the look that also gives rye bread at any random Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah, oh, rye bread. Mm. The rescue committee also went to the tents where the final three survivors had been left, but found that only one man was left alive as they had just been so weak. This man was taken back to the island but sadly died the next day. Once all the survivors were on the island of Rust, Quirini was given a place to stay in the chief of the local settlement's house. The son of the local chief needed to help Quirini with the walking as he was so weakened from his ordeal. The Italian merchant stayed in this house for three and a half months and experienced the greatest friendship and humanity from the owners. The rest of his crew were all given places to stay among the community, which only totaled about 120 people at this time. So where were they? Well, Grust is part of the Lofoten Islands, high up in the north of Norway. It's part of a group of islands that form the very southwesterly tip of the Lofoten Islands. They are so far north that they are essentially almost further north than the most northerly point of modern-day Sweden, and they're out in the middle of the North Sea, so this is incredibly remote. As such, Quirini and his men soon realised, or worked out from the locals, that no corn or grain of any kind was grown there, and the people there maintained their families entirely by fishing or keeping some local cattle. This is so far north that there was essentially no sun during winter and there's perpetual daylight from about May to August. I mean, what a place. I really want to go to the Lofoten Islands, but in a slightly more comfortable manner than Quirini did. I don't want to be shipwrecked and just drift there. Weakling. (laughs) Anyway, the two kinds of fish that were fished in the area were stockfish that was dried, but without being salted, it just dried in the sun and air, and then either eaten or traded for money. The trade focused on the town of Bergen, which was around a thousand miles away, so this was involving huge travel distances for them to take this fish. The other fish that they fished was halibut, which could weigh up to 200 pounds. So that was very likely the kind of fish that saved their lives uh, when it washed up ashore their first island that they was on. Yeah, uh, I know a lot about halibut from uh, when I went to the North Pacific Cannery, which is a sort of living history museum right up in the sort of northwest of British Columbia and Canada, right near the Alaskan border and uh, where they used to fish halibut and they used to bring them into the boat and sometimes they had to beat them up like with with baseball bats because they were so big they could knock people out of the boat and like break their arms and stuff and uh one of my friends from university used to work there which is a super random fact that is very cool Mm. so yeah halibut are a big deal I mean, we could go into much more detail about this halibut and stockfish trade, but this is already tangent time, so we can't have 
tangent time on tangent time. That's too meta. But let's just say that it was extensive and crucial for the local way of life. The money from the trade enabled people here to buy clothes made from cloth produced as far away as London, Quirini said. In his account, Quirini also spends a lot of time describing the pious nature of the locals and how devoted to religion they were. It deeply impressed the Italian merchant, and he goes to great lengths to talk about their customs and religious ceremonies, including very emotional funerals, apparently. Yeah, they were like super Catholic. And the calendar then ticked over to May, and the locals were beginning to prepare for their annual trip down to Bergen to sell these fish. Just before they were about to leave, the wife of the governor of the Lofoten Islands got the news about Quirini's shipwreck and sent him a gift of 60 of these stockfish, three loaves of rye bread, and a cake, which sounds like Orson's dream. That is what I want for my birthday. Just give me 60 stockfish, three loaves of rye bread, and then a little bit of cake for afterwards. Oh my god, best party ever. (laughs) You'll be the only one at that party. (laughs) Nom nom nom. For some reason, the governor's wife was worried that the islanders had somehow hurt or wronged the crew and promised to punish them if uh, Quirini told them what to do. But Quirini assured her that not only had they been not hurt by the islanders, but they had been saved by them. He praised them in the highest terms possible and sent the wife of the governor the rosary that he managed to keep on his altar and keep with him all this time. Yeah, so it seems like the wife of the governor is a bit of a snobby person who doesn't think that the local fishermen would ever be anything but sort of almost savages, really. So, yeah, she seems a bit judgy. Yeah. (laughs) But there was a slightly sour end to their visit, though, as they all got ready to go on this uh, trading ship down to Bergen. That was when the priest demanded that the crew pay the locals two crowns each for each month of their stay on the island, so a total of seven crowns each. And as they'd just been shipwrecked, it wasn't a surprise that they didn't have this money, so they handed over six silver cups, six forks, six spoons, and some other random items they'd managed to save from the shipwreck. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the priest kept most of these gifts as payment for his interpreting abilities. So now, slightly lighter in purse, the survivors boarded these boats that were due to set off down to Bergen. The priest said he'd join them to come and visit his archbishop and presumably hand over a share of his loot there. I mean, there's always someone taking advantage somehow. Anyway, Quirini's crew and the locals broke down in tears when it was time to leave, waving goodbye as the boat left the island where they had been rescued from certain death. It was the end of May as they set off, heading south and dodging rock formations and the generally quite dangerous Norwegian west coast. Luckily, it was sunny and bright for almost the entire time, so they could see these dangers well ahead. Occasionally, they stopped off at random settlements on the way, and Quirini says the locals were always happy to give them free food and drink once they heard of their adventures. Amazingly, one day they spotted two well-decked-out vessels on the horizon. As they got closer, they could see these were two galleys, and certainly well-to-do people were on board. 
As they spoke to the crew, they found out it was the Bishop of Trondheim who was out on a tour of his diocese, which uh, I guess you need to do by boat if this is your area of responsibility. Uh, certainly a bit different to the bishops in, say, central Sweden at this time. They didn't need many boats. Of course, the bishop was intrigued to hear Quirini's story and that of his crew. The bishop gave a letter of introduction to Quirini and told him to go and stay in the bishop's residence in Trondheim once he got there. And they arrived in Trondheim on Ascension Day and went into the Church of St. Olaf, the legendary king of Norway from the Viking period, they saw that the church had a great deal of decoration and it was naturally quite full on such an important religious day. After the ceremony, they were introduced to the governor of Trondheim, who mercifully spoke Latin. And the most amazing thing is we're recording this episode on Ascension Day. So, we are. Uh, that tells you how far in advance we're recording this episode, the 18th of May. So uh, finally, this was someone Quirini could speak to personally without a dodgy dealing bishop being their interpreter. Once people found out who they were, they were, of course, well looked after, but despite being so far away from home. Quirini looked around and asked people for advice about how to get home. He didn't mind if you had to go via Germany or England. They, they just wanted to get back. And perhaps unsurprisingly, they didn't want to do most of the travelling by sea. Partly, obviously, because of their crazy ordeal, but also because of the ongoing conflict on the seas between the Kalmar Union and the Hansa. So they didn't really want to get involved in all that drama, like, and they didn't want to be shipwrecked again. And this is the moment we've been waiting to tell and partly why we're doing this episode. So uh, what does the governor suggest they do? Well, the governor of Trondheim says to Corinne, Oh, I know another Italian guy, a countryman of yours. There is this Italian man called Giovanni Franco who was knighted by the king and lives down in Sweden. He helped the king on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and... I think he owns a castle or two down in Östergötland these days. You definitely go speak to him. It's only about 50 days to ride there anyway. Yeah, Giovanni Franco is back. That tour guide turned castle manager and knight that we've seen so often in the podcast recently. Yeah, I think this is the third time we mention him, uh, which is pretty extraordinary for someone who, on first glance, has a rather, like, minor role in the story. Yeah, just some random Italian guy who uh, is now living in Sweden. Most recently, we saw him flee during one of the many revolts we've covered recently, but we're happy to say he's now back in this uh, tangent time as we go back a few years in the in the timeline. The governor gave Quirini two horses and a guide to conduct the gang of survivors to Stegaboy Castle, where they would meet Giovanni. In return, Quirini presented him with a share of the stockfish he was still carrying with him, a silver seal, and a silver girdle. In return, he also got given a hat, a pair of boots and spurs, a leather cloak bag, a small axe, and an image of St. Olaf, a packet of herring, some bread, and four guilders, the, the coin's currency. Well, that's everything you need for a journey to Sweden. They got a third horse from the bishop, and the small group of survivors, now only 12 of them, set out together on their journey with their guide and the three horses. They travelled for 53 days, and Corinne wrote about how they often had to stay in miserable inns where they couldn't even buy any bread. 
However, they did have some other supplies with them, some milk, butter and cheese that they'd been given. And sometimes they managed to find better inns where they could buy meat and even beer. That's exactly what you want on this 53-day-long trek. Despite the lack of bread, though, they were always met with a kind and friendly welcome as they travelled down south towards their Italian contact. People always wanted to learn about their adventures, and most of them would refuse to take any payment once they were told of the terrible ordeal this gang of men had had to put up with. After all, it had been well over a year now since they first set off from Crete. In fact, everyone loved them so much that they didn't need to use any more money apart from the four guilders that the governor gave Quirini when they left Trondheim, so that's a pretty cheap 53-day journey. On the road, Quirini got to experience the full beauty of the landscape, but also how barren it was. There were hardly any settlements along the way in Norway, and in Sweden it wasn't much better. They travelled through barren valleys by deserted mountain ranges, but came across dozens of species of animals. They saw pheasants the size of a goose, and back in St. Olaf Church in Trondheim, they saw the skin of a white bear, which was 14 and a half feet long. Yeah, as a amazing stuff and Corinne goes and talks so much about the uh, landscape and the animals here but um, listeners to this podcast certainly have more of a general knowledge about what's happening in uh, Scandinavia even if you don't really know too much you know that bears exist and there are deer and stuff but the uh, the Italians not so much so he was super excited to see all these animals but we're now reaching the end of this adventure because a few days before they reached Giovanni and Stegaboy, they reached Varnstena, which even Corinne had heard of before because of St. Begitta's fame. Corinne wrote that at this place the northern kings and princes had built a most magnificent church covered with copper and that he'd counted 62 altars there. So yeah, Begitta certainly built up a pretty decent following by now, as, as we know. The nuns and chaplains received the strangers with great kindness. Corinne's party stayed for two days before they headed on to meet Giovanni Franco. You can imagine the Italian nobleman greeting this bedraggled gang of merchants led by Quirini. He probably didn't get many visitors from Italy, and certainly not ones that had survived such an ordeal. He helped them in a manner that did honour to his generosity, and did everything in his power to try and make things better for them. The group stayed with Giovanni for two weeks when they then heard that there was going to be a large plenary indulgence at Varnstena. This is like a big gathering of people who would be forgiven for their sins by the church. And this was going to be such a big deal that people were going to be coming from Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and even from Germany, Holland, and Scotland, with some people travelling more than 600 miles. And so if it was the the Scottish people travelling for 600 miles, it'd be travelling 500 miles and then 500 more. And I will walk 600 <laughs> miles just to get forgiveness for my sins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good memories from that song. 
And so that meant they decided to walk not 500 miles, but a few miles uh, to Vardstander with Giovanni. With so many people there coming from abroad, there was a decent chance they'd be able to find out about any ships that might be due to travel to Germany and England and help them on their way back to Italy. The convoy to Vardstena, as we might as well call it, was pretty large. There were a hundred horses in Giovanni's party, and once at Vardstena, Giovanni, he turned back to Stegeboy Castle, but he left money and clothes for the Italians for their journey, as well as ordering his son to travel with them towards Lerdose, where they would be able to get a ship from. There was also a house there that Giovanni and his son owned, so they would be able to stay there for free. He was being super helpful, as they ended up needing to stay in this house for a while until the ship that they had found to take them home was ready to leave. But soon, finally, after about 17 months, they were on their way home again on this ship. From Lodosa, three of Quirini's crew went home in a vessel bound for Rostock in Germany, and eight of them accompanied Quirini back to England. Quirini, when he got to England, stayed with a friend in London for two more months, and from there they travelled to Germany, and from there all the way down to Venice, via Basel in Switzerland. The journey from England took another month, so the whole trip took a very long time, about 18 months by the time they got back to Venice after they had left Crete, and they got back to Venice on the 12th of October, 1432. <laughs> You can only imagine how the suffering and disasters that they had been through had affected them, both physically and mentally. I mean, what a feat to go through. The fact that only a dozen men survived from the original crew goes to show how bad it was. This was a horrendous voyage, and I'm surprised that they trusted a ship to even take them back from England. I mean, I think I would have avoided the sea for a fair while after what they had gone through. Absolutely. And unfortunately, this is where most of the information about Quirini's story ends. We don't really know what happens to him next. What we do know is that he died 16 years later, but by then he'd altered Venetian food tastes forever. That's because the stockfish he took with him from Trondheim in northern Norway found its way into the popular culture and local cuisine in the area around Venice, where it's still popular today, 600 years later. There is a local dish called baccala alla Vicentia, pardon my pronunciation. But Vicentina, I think. Vicentina. Bacalao is, is white fish, at mm. least in Spanish, so presumably in uh, Italian as well. And it's considered one of the signature dishes of the Venice region. It is made from, yeah, stockfish, onions, anchovies, milk, and a mature cheese like parmesan. This love for the food for stockfish led to a start of trade between the states of Italy and northern Norway, something that, unsurprisingly, you know, wasn't really a thing before Quirini's adventures and his discovery of stockfish. Yeah, and the reason why we're able to tell this amazing story today is because Quirini then wrote a report about the whole journey for the Venetian Senate. And it was this report where he wrote all the details about the journey, which was particularly useful for people to learn about the landscape of northern Norway, because there's not many Italians who would have been there before. The trip also inspired other parts of culture. An opera was made about the journey and performed on the island of Rust in 2012 and 2014, and it apparently got really good reviews. That's so. great. 
right. Yeah. And there's not many people who get an opera written about their shipwreck either. So great job by uh, Corinne there. Yeah, what a dramatic, I mean, sometimes too dramatic, story of how an Italian merchant trading on Crete got shipwrecked in northern Norway. I hope you enjoyed the story. We just had to tell it in all its glory and craziness. And it gave us a bit of an idea about how Norwegian and Swedish society worked at this time. It seemed like... Most people were really nice to these uh, shipwreck survivors, but then there were also, you know, people like the local priest uh, taking advantage. Yeah, I think ultimately, though, yeah, most people were really nice and letting them stay in their inns for free or giving them food and certainly all the, the governors and the local officials and things. So, yeah, it was, it was super impressive. It's really interesting. And it was such a great story to tell. And I'm happy we got the chance to tell it. Uh, Quirini seems like a really strong-willed chap, to say the least, as well, and the rest of his crew. So, yeah, gosh. <laughs> And I'm glad that Giovanni Franco got to make another appearance in the story. I'm glad he was back too. Um, But yeah, thank you all for listening. If you like the show and like Tangent Time, um, follow us on Twitter and Facebook if you want. Leave us a review wherever you find your podcast or send us an email. And most importantly, perhaps recommend the show to a friend. Yeah, and please get in touch via email or on social media to suggest new Swedish phrases that we're running out. So either if you have phrases in Swedish that you think we should cover, or if you're curious about what a phrase in your language might be in Swedish, if there is a similar phrase, send in your suggestions and we'll see if uh, we can cover them, which I'm sure we will. Yeah, because we posted about this on Twitter and that was one of the suggestions, maybe translating other phrases into Swedish and yeah. see if there's an equivalent or something like that. So uh, yeah, we're doing a bit of a think about the Swedish phrase of the week section. But for now, I think it's time to say goodbye and we'll see you again next time. Hey då. Bye-bye. Land ho. <laughs> I will walk 600 miles to get forgiveness for my sins. Na, Hallelujah. Oh, you remember that uh, How I Met Your Mother episode where the Marshall plays that in the car? Yeah. <laughs> it's like stuck on loop. Yeah. Ah, good times. <laughs> <laughs>